0: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Andy Green, and Andy recently interviewed Roger Daltrey of The Who for our last word page in the magazine, and as we've talked about before, the last word is often kind of life wisdom, but you kind of just had a conversation with him, and we're going to just play some of that in a little bit, and it's just sort of where Roger is at in his career, which is kind of like where the Stones are at in his own way. He's just he's just plunging on. And currently, and he'll, he'll just plunge on no matter what. Currently, he's touring
1: without The Who. But the, it's, it's a
0: lot of The Who's backing band, though, right? The current backing band?
1: Yeah. He sort of has a philosophy that if he stops touring for a year, that he will lose his voice. So he likes to just keep going and keep going. So The Who... They toured like crazy for the past five years or so. And their downtime, he spent a month doing Tommy Straight Through with a lot of the Who's backing band and with local symphony orchestras. And I talked to him in the days that we were building up to the first show of that tour. Yeah,
0: and I cut out all the stuff about him talking about a tour that's now over. Yeah. I mean, and The Who, of course, are down
1: to just Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend. Yeah, of the founding band, but they've had Zach Starkey on drums now for much, much longer than Keith Moon was in the band ever.
0: I don't think he's unseating Keith Moon in the No,
1: by no means at all. But they've had some of these guys in the band for a long time, though. Pino Palladino, he's out now, so they have a new bass player,
0: When John Entwistle died, the great bass player in The Who, they actually got Pino Palladino. And Pino Palladino is like this very cool British guy, but he also plays with D'Angelo and John
1: Mayer. Apparently he can play literally anything. No, yeah, he's a fantastic bass player. I think the problem always was that John always fought to be turned up very high in the mix on stage. It was a constant source of tension between him and Pete. And as soon as John was gone, the new bass player, Pino, he didn't have the power to be turned up. So the sound of the Who on stage changed a lot. That thunderous, booming, like overpowering bass was suddenly very quiet. Well, the whole thing about the Who is they
0: actually, as early as they came in the canon of rock, they actually really subverted the traditional roles of drums, bass, and guitar, which were the only instruments in the band other than you know the the keyboards that... Pete Townsend would add in instead of the bass and drums laying a rhythmic backdrop for everything else bass and drums were actually fighting to be the lead instruments against guitar leaving Pete to kind of become a, the rhythm section in him, a traditional rhythm section in himself while these two maniacs were bashing it out behind him and that to me is why the is what made the who such a uniquely exciting band yeah. and, and it's also as Roger says to
1: you that it's It's one of the differences between rock and rock and roll. And then live on stage, it was this crazy dynamic where the drummer and guitarist and lead singer are all fighting for attention. The lead singer is twirling. around his microphone, and Pete is jumping up and down, smashing his guitar, and the drummer is going completely insane. And then and the bass player, John, would just stand there totally quiet. But in several ways, he was playing the dominant instrument that you heard. Both him and Keith Moon were essentially just playing nonstop
0: solos. Yeah. It In a way, it shouldn't have worked at all, and it's the kind of thing that's very difficult to emulate. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah,
1: and it was basically a power tree that was fronted by a lead singer. It was a very unique sound they had, and if you hear live at Leeds or something, you get a great sense of it.
0: And Daltrey is in a unique place because he's not, you know, Mick Jagger. He had to fight, again, that word, sometimes literally, as he tells you, you know, like punching Pete Townsend. He had to fight to be seen as a traditional frontman to kind of get that respect because everyone else was so flamboyant. It was only hardcore who fans are very well aware of this, but it was only when Tommy came out yeah, and Roger grew his hair out, played Woodstock and was able to embody this character that he
1: really stepped out as a star in his own right. Yeah. I think for a while it was very hard for him because the songs that they were all written by Pete. And the drummer, so it was so flamboyant and and so famous and everything for the and Pete sang so well. If if you hear Pete's demos of those songs, they're fantastic. So for Roger to find his voice was a long process. It it took him about seven years in that band to really establish himself as the firm singer that he did with Tommy. The Who in the sort of classic rock canon as
0: perceived by you know millennials and younger because there is still some currency for a lot of things everyone loves Bruce Springsteen the stones still have a certain currency among at least some people yeah, yeah. i'm concerned about the who's yeah. outreach to uh the young generation yeah. or because they are the very top of the rock canon and yet yeah. my sense is that for people under 30 that status yeah. has slipped even when they look yeah. back
1: historically. I think the biggest thing is that Zeppelin and the Beatles and Pink Floyd are frozen in the amber of the 70s. They're forever young, they're forever great. And the Who, they kept going. You know, they broke up for about 7 years in the 80s, but they kept going. They got older. They did endless tours of the same songs. Then Pete sold the songs for, to uh, commercials. It was selling Nissan and a thousand other things. So the music was just on TV all the time, it was on it was on CSI, it was just <laughs> sort of everywhere and they lost their cool. It was just always I, there.
0: I think that I, n- I rarely I was gonna say I never I rarely begrudge people or musicians a big paycheck. Pete Thompson, you know, basically sold a bunch of these rights and said that, you know, basically he's buying himself a boat every time. Yeah. And also, you know, every time he did that, he didn't have to do the grueling road work he would have otherwise had to do. Yeah. And I don't begrudge him that. At the same time, for their legacy, it's definitely, I think it's hurt them. Yeah. But he, I think he made a decision. He's like, well, I'm not, eventually I won't be around for the legacy. Yeah. Uh,
1: but I will be around by buy my <laughs> yeah. boat. I have raised this topic to myself. I yeah. said, Pete, I hear behind Blue Eyes now, I think of other things besides the songs that's been used in so many places. And he was just like, that's your problem. <laughs> that, that's not my problem, you know. So he just doesn't, he just doesn't care. Um, and I, I think a big thing that hurt them is that Roger, in a, around two thousand nine or so, was having major vocal problems, and he got surgery eventually, which which caused a huge difference. But they played the Super Bowl at the peak of his vocal problems, so in front of the biggest audience they ever had, his voice wasn't there. Yeah, we were talking about this yesterday.
0: The something like the Super Bowl. Is a do or die occasion Mm. And it also came at a time When they were starting to become skeptical About like why do we have to keep hearing All this old rock When you're facing that attitude Which is an understandable attitude You better bring it You're talking about one one of the greatest live bands Of all time Mm -hmm. Who had a bad night On one of the biggest nights of their career If there was ever a lingering impression Left on a generation Unfortunately it's that And that sucks And you know I also think The Who are kind of I don't want to overgeneralize. They certainly have always had female fans, but they're a little bit of a dude band. They're are perceived that way. They're perceived... Yeah. Roger has a macho aspect to him. Pete is not macho. They're actually a pretty arty band. Yeah. But I think it's, it's kind of a misconception, but that I think they're perceived as kind of just like macho dude rock, which is well, a shame because they're more complicated than that.
1: And I think that they never had a bunch of big crossover hits to pop radio. There's never like a Beast of Burden type who song. That got, uh, that got outside of the rock audience they had, lot, they had many big hits But they were rock hits in a lot of ways I
0: would also suggest that they are Plagued by something that Originally plagued them back In the early 60s which is there's not really a cute one you know you're in trouble when they yeah. kind of put your drummer <laughs> up in front to be the cute one yeah. uh, in the pictures it's it's just that picture of jimmy page swigging from a jack daniels bottle and he looks so perfect or the iconic badassness of mick and keith that right. translates across generations yeah it's it, the, the
1: who don't have that they just have great music more than and anything there's no sense of danger to them like the stones
0: in the most cliched sense Yes, yes in the, it, in the, the m- most cliched sense In course. the most sort of cliched, like, dumbass, dumbed-down sense But yeah. that's true, yeah, I mean, because that's what Even in hip-hop, when people reference being a rock star They mean, like, Mick Jagger Which is weird, though They also mean, they do mean, like, Keith Moon They don't know who Keith Moon right. is But they, they do <laughs> mean The thing is, Keith Moon was the ultimate
1: hotel record, right. But he wasn't sexy Right, but he was the drummer And those stories that almost feels separate from the legacy of the who it's the legacy of like keith in a weird way you know to quote
0: pete we we were the first band to vomit in the bar and find the distance to the stage too far which actually right. now occurs to me maybe he was trying to he was actually trying to say like hey we were fuck-ups too which they right. were yeah but yeah there's just something it's it's just and i think there's also uh you know there's a suspicion of big arena rock but listen, like, the bands that you would say, okay, they wouldn't
1: exist without are, you know, Pearl Jam, U2, who also are not considered no, super cool, but, you know. But, Odie, step back. You could argue they gave birth to power pop and punk and arena rock. All three different things. Yes. <laughs> I've gone around arguing that. I, I think it's, yeah. I think it's very true. They
0: definitely invented power pop.
1: Yes. And even Prague in some crazy ways, you could argue. So there's so many different things that came out of them, yet they don't get the credit for much of it. Yes, they're just starving in the alley. (laughs) I'm not saying that. that I'm saying that Zeppelin looms so large. And The Who and Zeppelin in the 70s were as big. And since 1980, it's gone in such different directions.
0: I would say since 1991 or something yeah, well, like that. Yeah.
1: I think from the moment that John Bonham died and they split and it was just frozen in time.
0: It's, yeah, it's, it's hard to say, but yes, I, I know what you're saying. And it, the general interest in the rock canon as a whole has declined, but it. it even relative to that This is a peculiar thing And it, and it cannot stand This aggression cannot stand well, And we should mention There was a, a messy set Of ugly allegations Against Pete Townsend That, it, that yeah. it, we won't dig into it But it You know If it doesn't appear To be really based In, in, in any truth It's just a really Unfortunate ugly thing That you know yeah. Hideous to talk about But that didn't help either It
1: tarred them They yeah. had a Broadway play you know, on Full House, when Danny was singing the song to like, embarrass his daughters, he was singing a Who song. It's, they embody like, what dad's like in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, so it's an unfortunate association. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and, you know, that said, there's never been a Quadrophenia musical on Broadway.
1: They tried one on, on like the West End, I think.
0: <laughs> I feel like you never know. You never know. Things could have a moment. I think Tommy, I think the culture is
1: probably not going to have another Tommy moment. Though, like, next year is the 50th, so God knows what they're going to do for that. Yeah, and
0: and I think Tommy, I think, there's a bunch, the Who have a strange story, and that's one of the reasons I love them. It's it's, it's just like a strange, unruly story. I mean, Tommy has way too much weight in in the history of the Who, which is, the, the Stones don't have anything like that, the Stones don't have, you know, it's as if, you know, uh, their satanic majesty's request became bigger than the the, the stones you know right. it's i mean it's a bad comparison cuz yeah. Tommy's much better were, than that but they were
1: damaged by it and they kept flogging it over and over again a movie a tour in the 80s a play again they they kept flogging it but if you listen to something like young man's blues from
0: live at leeds yeah. like that for me is the very essence of of the Who, as much as you know. It's funny, Steve Zant says the best Who album, and I got to actually yeah. argue with it, this to his face, and he really believes this. He believes the best Who album is their debut. Yeah, that's crazy. With, <laughs> with all due respect to Steve, I mean, I, I think that shows the the militancy of his sort of his garage rock views. Yeah, I, I think that the first album is kind of a barely formed. Band, but uh, but you know, and, and there's so much. There's, there's, there's who by numbers, which is a much mellower thing, and it has such amazing songwriting. There's all the speech solo stuff, but let's let's hear uh, young man blues, which they didn't even write, uh, yeah. but but still, let's hear it.
2: Well, a young man ain't got nothing in the world these days.
0: Yeah and it, you know There's also a little bit of, of metal invention there too Let's throw that in there too And that uh, yeah. there's, there's a bit in, in Live at Leeds Where you start You suddenly hear that That communication breakdown Chugging before Communication yeah. breakdown yeah. So the chugging on the E chord So yeah. you know yeah, so The Who they- In conclusion The Who are good When we come back We're going to play Andy Green's conversation With Who frontman Roger Daltrey You're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now I'm Brian Hyde And I'm in the studio With Andy Green
1: And we are about to
0: play Andy Green's conversation with Roger Daltrey of The Who.
1: Do you want to set this up at all, or should we just play this? Sure. It was a couple days before the launch of his Tommy tour. He had just landed in New York City was in his hotel room. He was getting room service, and he just called me up, and we talked for a pretty long time. Great. Let's hear it. So you were one of the few rock stars of your era that had no substance problems when your bandmates certainly did. How do you avoid that?
2: Well, I had to. I keep them in line. You try getting three people on acid back from, from Monterey all the way back to London. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God I hadn't taken the acid. I didn't know. I, I, you know all I ever did, did, did was, was pot. I, was, you know, I smoked a bit of pot. None of it used to agree with me. Mm-hmm. It used to affect my singing not in a good way. And I just want all I ever wanted to be was a good singer. Boring. I was fucking boring. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, hopefully I never turned into an arsehole because I saw so many people coming out of the bathroom. They went in really good blokes and they came out complete assholes. <laughs>
1: okay. I feel like so many bands are taken down by jealousy. And you were in a band where there's so much attention on your drummer for being this crazy amazing drummer. So much attention on your guitarist. So how did your ego just manage to deal with that when they...
2: that? but they that band one by one joined me in my band. Yeah. Uh, and Moon was the last piece of the jigsaw, and the chemistry. I knew the chemistry was right in that band. Yeah. I mean they were irreplaceable. So you, you, your ego goes out the window. You don't care about that. Mhm. Well, all, you ca- all I ever cared about was the band.
1: Yeah, and it's just somewhat of a miracle you managed to find like the best bass player in history and the best drummer in history and one of the great songwriters ever. The best I mean, for
2: Who yeah. And John was the best bass player for the Who. Yeah. So you see, it's it's not fair to say, and it's not right to say that they were the best bass player in history or the yeah. best drummer in. Mm-hmm. Keith would have been the worst drummer. Um, he would have been the worst drummer in the world yeah. for the small faces. Yeah. Uh, so would John have been the worst bass player in the world for small faces? Mm-hmm. But they the best bass player and drummer for the for the Who.
3: Yeah,
2: you could find, and the same with Pete Townsend. You know, yeah. Pete guitaring wouldn't have suited Led Zeppelin. As as we built the band, mm-hmm. that chemistry built around the four of us and it was very much ours it's a unique unit yeah. and it's un- and it um, and I somehow or the other it was mu- it was a unit that someone like of Townsend's ability in in, in his in, in, the, in his musical writing needed it, it it fed it in a way that only those kind of players could have done yeah and it was extraordinary extraordinary I don't know, it's almost, it's always felt like a a, a, a universal, bigger universal hand was guiding it, you know.
1: Tell me the biggest lesson you learned about compromise by being in a band for so long.
2: Oh, I mean, that, that came very early on, very, you know, after getting thrown out for fighting. Uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, controlling my temper. you know, I, I, I used to, I, I, I would, you know, I'm a little guy and i I used to Get bullied quite a lot when I was small mm-hmm. and young, and uh, myself my fight or flight instinct was if I ever felt it was going to get nasty on me, I would I would fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I had an altercation with Keith one night, but he did attack me first. So I didn't start it. Mm-hmm. I did start it because I flushed his drugs down the toilet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> And he came slashing at me with the bells of a tambourine, which wasn't very, wasn't very polite. Mm-hmm. And it ended up in a bad fight, and I got thrown out of the band for four weeks, four or five weeks. Wow. I can't actually remember how long it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and uh, you know, I, I was going to go on to form a soul band and sing the kind of stuff I've done on this album. Uh, so at the time, with the arrogance of you. Uh, and uh, and the kind of guy I was at the time, well, well fuck it, I'll start another band. Mm-hmm. No, I've done it with that one. I'll just start another one, move on. And then, anyway, the management came back to me and said, look, you know, it's not working without you. Can, will you come back? They'll have you back if you promise not to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, well, I'll come back if if they promise not to take drugs before the show. They put the of the show, but not... <laughs> it, was, it was becoming ridiculous. We had all this great music we were making. They were great musicians. Yeah. We've been through the marquee clubs and all, that, all those days free of it. it was only kind of a, in the late, um, well, the kind of 1965, 66, it started to get out of the hand. 63, 64, when we were really growing as a, as a musical unit, mm-hmm. it was all clean and it was fabulous. And as soon as it, the drugs kicked in, Songs became so fast I couldn't get the words in to sing them. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, so the singer's job is completely fucked. You, know, you can't do anything with the songs, and it became boring.
1: Do you think your youthful anger, do you think it drove you and it pushed you to sort of sing better and be better in, in the band at times?
2: I was volatile, incredibly volatile, but not angry. i the one with the anger. Mm-hmm. Well, let's put this way, you could focus on anger much more.
1: Tell me about your fitness routine.
2: I, I, I don't do much, and people don't believe me. I don't do much. I do I do 20 minutes in the gym, maybe twice a week, just mm-hmm. some light weights, and I do rowing machine. And I might do some, I don't know, I, don't, I really don't do much. Huh. But I was a sheet metal worker. I did build my body up for a film I did once where I played a... <laughs> A prisoner in jail, and so he was doing weights all the time. Mm-hmm. And I just, my, my, I just have that kind of body. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, do you watch what you eat? At least, do you, do you
1: eat a lot of sugar or anything?
2: Uh, no, I, 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 I watch what I eat because I don't like to be overweight. I like if, if you've got to remember that the singers are unlike guitarists. We're, we are we are a walking instrument, mm-hmm. and. If you don't keep, like, you know, look, look at Jagger. Look how he looks after himself. You know, he's, ma- he's magnificent for his age. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that he can do what he does. And by the way, they're playing amazing at the moment. Yeah. They really are good at the moment. Um, you know, he looks after his instrument. That's what it's all about. That's mm-hmm. the, and, I, and I respect my instrument. And I love what I do. It's the best job anyone could ever have in the world. I have to respect my body.
1: Before your vocal surgery a few years ago, I, I know that you're struggling a bit singing. So, how hard was it then to sort of try and sing and not have the power that you had before? I'm, I'm sure emotionally that was very really difficult.
2: I, I didn't realise I had a precancerous condition, and I'm probably had it for I probably had it for uh, ten years, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, it was getting very, very difficult to sing at the end, uh, and. I just got lucky. I just went to a guy. I got. I went to a throat guy in, in, in San Francisco uh, because I, I was having trouble singing,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and then he called up. He called me up. I was, I was on the road, so I, he sorted me up to get me through a couple of shows.
3: Mm-hmm. And he
2: called me up and he gave me the name of a guy guy at, at Harvard, at the Voice Institute, at, at Mass General.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, a guy called Stephen Zaitels. And he said, "This is the man for you. Go and see him." And when I got to Boston, I called up Stephen Zaitels, and he he handled. He, he, he had a look at my my throat, and he didn't like the look of it. We didn't know what it was, whether it's cancerous or not. And that was in two thousand uh-huh. and nine. Uh huh. I went I, I, I went in and I had an op and a biopsy. Fortunately, it wasn't cancerous, it's a pre cancerous thing. Uh, and he took off the growth. And my voice has just been getting better and better. I mean, he looks. I go once a year for a check, and he, he takes care of me. And if he ever needs me to do anything for him, I'm there for him.
1: Well, wow. So, at uh, the shows before the surgery, just how scared were you that it was maybe going forever?
2: Uh. I don't I don't get scared in that way it, right. it, 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 one day it will go uh, it was it was a weird just before the operation uh, going out not knowing if it, it didn't worry me if it was cancer if it was cancer cancer
3: mm-hmm. there's,
2: no, there's no point in worrying about things like that when you get it you get it, and it, it you, you might as well make it your friend if you make it your friend you have a chance of living with it mm-hmm. and maybe and maybe and getting over it if you make it your enemy it will beat you yeah uh, so um, I didn't worry about any of that but I and I did and I thought well I might not be able to sing when I wake up but if that's how it's going to be that's how it's going to be what are you going to do about it
3: yeah
2: like like, like like Tony Soprano says you know what are you going to do <laughs> <laughs>
1: In the past few years, there's been so many big rock stars we've lost from David Bowie and Prince and Glenn Frey and there's been Lamb of Leonard Cohen. Just how do you feel as you watch all of that happen and do and you feel more of a responsibility to be out there and doing what you're doing?
2: I feel incredibly lucky to be doing what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
2: and I, I do everything I can to be as good as, good as I can possibly be. Every night, and as fresh as I can possibly be every night. Um, but if it starts to go, and I and the notes aren't quite there anymore, and it, you know, and I will know when the energy and and the uh, what will be the the transmission of the emotion to the audience mm-hmm. to move them with the voice. When that starts to deplete, I will stop. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Because then it, then it becomes, then it becomes, it, it will become an irrelevant then.
1: Yeah. But doesn't part of you hope in your 80s that you're still singing Monk and Fooled again?
2: Oh, I, that's the one I don't want to go, fucking. me. the only song I've bloody bored as shit this week. Oh, really? I'm, I'm bored of shit won't get bored again. It's the only who song I've bored of. Why? I, I don't know. You, you know, I'm just being honest with you.
1: Yeah. I, that. Yeah. And that primal scream if, is...
2: but I all the others, I can approach like I'm singing it for the first time.
3: hmm
2: And I don't know what's happened with me psychologically. Mm-hmm. We won't get pulled again. Or maybe it's a song. Yeah. Um. Uh, I n- never seem to, to be in the same pocket where I'm singing it for the first time.
1: Huh. Oh, that's very interesting. You know, there are so many farewell tours now. There's Elton John and a ton of others. I mean, do you think that the era of classic rock is sort of ending? That this is, we're in the last few years of, of this world?
2: I haven't got a clue.
1: Uh-huh.
2: We're still on, we're still on our farewell tour. Uh-huh. I did say we we're on the we we're at the beginning of the long goodbye. Uh-huh. And that's what I call it. It's a long goodbye. And we don't know how long it'll be, but we don't talk about stopping. But one day the business will stop us. Yeah. So. You don't stop. You don't stop doing it. It stops you doing it.
1: So how's your book going? And do you find it therapeutic to sort of write about your life like this?
2: If the book is finished. It will be out in, in October. Mhm. Um. It's called Thanks a lot, Mr. Kibble White. Kibble White. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm starving, so I'm eating some. I don't know what they are, but they're quite nice. Okay. Um, uh, thanks a lot, Mr. Kibble White. Uh, that's what it's called, um, and it's been kind of weird. It's been a little like falling off a cliff and seeing your life go before you, mm-hmm. and can leave you a bit uh, wishing you'd done more. But then, equally. When you look back at it all, you think, "Fuck you, did not do a lot." <laughs> you know, it's a kind, of, it's a, it's a real dichotomy. It really is. I, I must say that I have enjoyed it greatly. Mm-hmm. And how I, because I, I didn't do a publishing deal. I just wanted to see if I had a good book in me. Uh, I didn't know I'd have a good book in me because my life. I I don't know that my life's been any different to anybody else's life. I don't know that. I you know. I've had an extraordinary life. I'm well well aware of that. Mm -hmm. But until you actually write it all down, I didn't have a clue whether I've got a story in me, you know, of a journey Mm -hmm. and a book that people might be interested in. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So what I did, I I found a a, a journalist friend of mine who who did an interview with me and he made my, my wife laugh so much he so said, you've got to get him to help you with your book. He might be able to, you know, get you focused. Yeah. So, so I, I did a deal with, 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 with a, guy, yeah, a guy called Matt Rudd, mm-hmm. and he just used to interview me for hours and hours and hours and hours, and then he would write out everything I said. And then he would, he kind of was, he, did, he didn't write, he just wrote down what I said. And then he put it, he was almost like a film director in a way, but for books, you know. Right. And he pieced it together and started to build up how he could see building this into a story. And then he'd carry on, them over a period of like three years, we just did interviews and interviews. He even came to see me in the hospital. He was one of the few people allowed to see me mm-hmm. when I had meningitis. And interviewed me when I was, didn't even know when I was going to come out of the hospital. <laughs> wow. So it was kind
1: of interesting. Are yeah. there are there any parts of your life that were kind of blurry that you that you couldn't recall clearly, or or is it all there there's in the, your head?
2: There is a period. There's a couple of periods, yeah. There's, there, 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 there's quite a few chunks missing because I've had well, about four quite serious concussions in my life. Oh. And there are quite a few big chunks you know, I don't, you know... It worries me when they talk about concussion and dementia. Oh. <laughs> you know, I've, had four, I've had four quite, you know, big concussions. I mean, you know, ten minutes.
1: <laughs> wow, so then, so then so then, what periods of your life are, are kind of blurry then? Well, um,
2: the mid-sixties, um... More to do with my, not to do with the band so much, but to do with what I was doing after when the band, when the band were on stage.
3: Wow.
2: It's a bit blurry. Maybe because I was drinking a lot and living in a van and doing all stuff. Uh, It's kind of weird. Yeah. But but most of the group stuff I remember clear as a bell.
1: You've sang Tommy like so many times now. Is there any little part of it that you don't like singing, that you kind of dread that 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 little moment or the whole thing you love doing?
2: It's a challenge every night, Mm -hmm. Um, and I love a challenge, so that's all I can say. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's a difficult piece, but the more I, the more I think about it, and the more I listen to opera, and I've listened to quite a bit now, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) uh, operatically. I mean, I, I. I think it's one of the best operas ever written. Oh, yeah? certainly got, certainly got the best lyrics.
3: Oh, yeah. It's
1: brilliant.
2: <laughs> when you, go to, grand, when you go, go, go to the Grand Opera, there's not a lot of words, is there?
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, so tell me the music that you listen to that still moves you the most.
2: Oh, all kinds of music. I, there's not
1: one.
2: There's not one. Mm-hmm. I, I, I try to keep my ears to the ground with what's around... Um, there's very little of the new stuff that, that I like, but there are a few. Um, you know, Florence and the Machine, she's a singer, she's great. Yeah. But, uh, who else, um, most of the old people, though, are still, you know, I, you, you, when I go back to the original people, people like Jerry Lee. Oh, yeah. Chuck Berry and, yeah. God. The fire in their bellies, it was brilliant.
1: (laughs) Yeah, to be doing what they did in 1957 and everything, I mean, when nobody had had done it before.
2: And then you suddenly realize, where's the fire in the belly today? I I mean, I listen to a lot of the bands that are out there. There's an awful lot of Emperor's New Clothes.
1: (laughs) I was interviewing Robert Plant not, not, not a few years ago, and he was so adamant that he didn't want to be back in Zeppelin. You know, so why do you think that your attitude has always been has always been so different about the Who? How you've always been so eager to keep doing it? I
2: don't know. Um, I'm just I'm a fan, I'm a Townsend fan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I'm a fan of his music. Mm-hmm. I think it's so original. Um, his writing is extraordinary.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, do you think you'd ever play the Who Sell Out straight through at a concert?
2: I'd have to listen to it again. I haven't listened to it for years. I
1: mean, what's on it? As there, <laughs> is I Can See for Miles and Tattoo and Lady Marianne with a Shaky Hand and, and all that I could
2: do all of those. Yeah. Um, is Israel on that? Yeah. Oh, I know we couldn't do that. <laughs> I don't think I could sing up here any. No, I don't. I, I, I don't think we'd be able to do it all, but probably most of it. I, wouldn't, I don't think I'd ever want to sing Ray Allen on stage. Uh, that, that was that was that was that was done in the studio over. I can't remember where we were. Was it New York? It might have been in New York. It might have been it might have been Philly or somewhere. But I can't remember what city it was. Uh-huh. In a, in and it was all tape loops and double tracking on on two tape recorders and bouncing across. There's layer after layer of of vocals. Um, to try and bloody reinvent
1: that would be a nightmare. <laughs> uh, okay, are the Who going to tour next year? Are there more touring plans for the Who? Uh, we're
2: not. We haven't planned. We haven't planned anything, but we're, we've we also haven't um, ever thought about giving up.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We, we've said this is the beginning of the long goodbye. At the beginning of our fiftieth anniversary tour. Mm-hmm. And a long goodbye is as long as it takes. I've always been of the opinion that you don't give this business up. This business gives you up.
1: Huh, yeah. Yeah, and like, please keep going. I would love to see you guys again and again and again and again. I Uh, never wanted to stop.
2: As long as we can do it well, we will. Mm -hmm. If it ever starts to get, you know, not good and loses, Loses the, that essence that the who brings on stage, then we'll stop.
1: You know, I love face dances and uh, and uh, I I love it's hard. Do you do, do? you agree that those are very good albums that are, are underappreciated? Um,
2: I I was a, at the time I didn't like it's hard. Mm-hmm. I think there's some good tracks on there. I think cry if you want is a great track. Yeah. But, uh, I can't remember what else was on there. Um,
1: There's Eminence Front and
2: Face I, Bounces. I, 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 uh, I thought that was a good album. Yeah. Um, I think it was a little overproduced, a bit cleaned up. Yeah. Uh, uh, there, but I, I, on its hard, there were some, some things that were I thought really quite interesting. Yeah,
1: and uh, I think By Numbers is a masterpiece. I, w- I would love to hear it live one day, just the whole thing.
2: Well, I, I do quite a few songs from that on my new show with with, with the band Without Pete at the moment. Mm-hmm. I'm doing How Many Friends and uh, Dreaming from the Wastes. Yeah. Um, those I can do easy. They, I find those easy. Yeah. How Many Friends is a great song.
1: Oh, it's gorgeous, yeah.
2: Especially, especially in these days of social, anti-social media.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm going to end on an, on an office argument that I want you to settle that we've been having for years so who's a better band the stones or the who
2: it's it's like comparing like chocolate and chocolate i mean the stones are a rock and roll band Mm -hmm. they are the best rock and roll band in the world by far uh the who are a rock band whether we're the best in the world i can't be i can't tell you because i'm in the who Mm uh they're a fucking good rock band that's all I can say, and, and let other people decide whether we're the best. But i am decided, for you, that the Stones are the best rock and roll band in the world. But the Who are a rock band. We don't do the roll, we do the rock.
3: <laughs>
0: so that was Roger Daltrey talking to Andy Green. And there was a moment in that interview, Andy, where you were talking about the giants of 50s rock and roll, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, because Roger said that was the stuff he still listened to. And you mentioned, you know, it's crazy they were doing that as early as, you know, 1957. And we were saying in the break, the Who form, we're doing stuff in like 1962. So that was only five years later. And it, it just, not to belabor the obvious, but when you talk to someone like Roger Daltrey now here in 2018, you're talking to someone connected to... An era that will look back at this, this very particular era—the era when when rock and roll ruled the earth—it's not like he was super far removed from the Chuck Berry was still having hits when when the Who started. Yeah. These guys are living history. It's a, I had a similar thought when I was talking to George Clinton, someone who experienced doo wop, who was in a doo wop group in the fifties, and then experienced. I mean, these you really can't value the chance to yeah. talk to these people enough, I and think.
1: what's sad to think, I hate to think it. This that these people are off in their mid-70s now. And when Roger Daltrey is in his mid-80s, I like to think he will, he probably will not be singing, you know, like Big Who concerts again. So this is the final few years that these people are still going to be around and still be active. And they're dropping, too. You know, we've lost so many in the past couple of years, even. You know, the solution...
0: By the way, to get young people into anything, I think it's simple. I figured it out, and I figured mm-hmm. out what the what the Who need. Two words: Netflix documentary.
1: Yep, I think that that kids love Netflix. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's been some that there have been many Who documentaries. Well, that's the thing; it, it, the kids are all right. Which
0: was a, a late seventies documentary about the Who, which is. Absolutely awesome. Mm-hmm. Kind of set the template for that precise Netflixy kind of band summation documentary. Yes. And but they just need to make another one.
1: Yeah, but Fun, they snappy. did make another one about ten years ago. <laughs>
0: yeah, and another another one. <laughs> another
1: another one. The story's been told a lot. Is the problem? updated it. Updated. Refer <laughs> to the past ten years of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just
0: the past ten years of, yeah. of the Who after Donet muscles death. Yeah. John Whistle had a uh, one of the last of the rock and roll deaths as well. Uh, yeah.
1: I, I I was in Las Vegas for it. It was my 21st birthday. I flew to Las Vegas to see the who play at a tiny uh, club to launch to the tour. I was on my way to go meet John at a art gallery where, where he was where he was meeting fans when the news came in.
0: Yes, and he uh, was partaking in recreational drugs whilst in the company of a stripper.
1: Yes, she tells this sad story. No. That, <laughs> I'll say it very politely, uh, that she couldn't fall asleep because he was snoring, and then suddenly at some point he stopped snoring, so so she was able to sleep. And when she woke up, he was
0: cold. And the poor band had to, they had to continue yeah, for insurance reasons. People yeah. acted like it was some callous thing, yeah. but you you can't just cancel the yeah. tour.
1: And, and before a tour of that magnitude all members of bands they have to get physicals and john flunked his with flying colors so he wasn't insured so they had to have pino paladino on retainer and ready to fly in at a moment's notice so oh, that i didn't realize is that right yes it was they had set up if for some reason john couldn't do it they had spoken to pino about coming in so oh my god john dies on like a Thursday. they played a show on a sunday or something it was they played hollywood bowl a few days later uh and and Pete walked out after a couple of songs and said look I'm not pretending as if nothing happened but we have to go on and then Pete said to me when I talked about it he's like he was like it was not only, it was not the insurance where we would have lost like 20 million dollars and we have to owe the whole tour a huge crew of people like 200 people were gonna be employed for six months that didn't take other jobs right you know to stop a tour like that is very hard the weird
0: thing is the who, have a there's a a reputation that you know they're constantly doing farewell tours which is true they were the they were the first band to have kind of multiple farewell tours but what's weird is these things don't fall into simple like first they were great then they were a a fake version of themselves then it kept getting worse no it's not like that at all bizarrely the who were kind of a famously the who on ice in 1989 with the horns which was one of the first concerts I ever saw in my entire life but then got awesome again yeah. in the early 2000s yeah. before Doug's death.
1: Forgotten. There's a little sliver of time from 1999 to, to 02. <laughs> there's this three year period where they were killing it on stage. It, and they were young by today's standards. They were like they—they they were in their mid-fifties. Yeah, they were like Pearl Jam's they, age. Yeah, they were—they
0: were much younger than like the Easter Street Band are now. And much they, younger, and, and you know, even even the Quadrophenia tour that preceded it, they, there was a great—I would say—from '96 to 2002 or whatever it was—was yeah. was, was just fantastic. And so it's like you know, and I hope uh, you know, younger acts get a chance to some get a chance to have careers as long and weird as the who and so in other words long live rock so this has been (laughs) (laughs) this has been rolling stone music now i'm brian hyatt thanks to andy green for joining me we played andy's interview with roger daltrey we will be back next week here on sirius xm channel 106 volume at 1 p.m on friday in the meantime we are a podcast download us as a podcast subscribe to us as a podcast On iTunes or wherever you get them, maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. And as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.